I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hi, I'm Ethan Nadelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs. But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drugs. Hello, psychoactive listeners. Well, we're approaching the end of the second season of Psychoactive. But in thinking about how I'd like the last or penultimate episode to be, uh, you know, the notion of getting more personal and going more deeply into the issue and the questions around MDMA seemed to me a good one. Now, obviously, we've talked about MDMA before. There was the episode with Rick Doblin talking about his history with MDMA and the the trials that will hopefully result in the FDA approving uh, MDMA in the next year or so. But our guest today is somebody who's not an MDMA psychotherapist. He doesn't do psychotherapy with MDMA. He's not part of the trials that MAPS has been moving forward and others, but he's deeply knowledgeable about the subject. His name is Charlie Winninger. He's the author of a book a couple of years ago called Listening to Ecstasy, The Transformative Power of MDMA. Now, he's a licensed psychoanalyst and mental health counselor in New York. He's been in private practice more than 30 years. Some years ago, the New York Times and Newsday nicknamed him the quote-unquote love doctor because of his work with singles. But now he's specializing more in relationships and communication skills and dealing with love and couples and also grief. But I also asked... Um, uh, Charlie to invite his wife Shelley 
on the program as well, Shelley Winninger, um, uh, in part because the book he and story he tells in Listening to Ecstasy is so much about the relationship. I mean, the two of them, when I cross paths with them in New York City, they are an inseparable couple. And something about them almost reminded me of Sasha and Ann Shulgin. If you think about their book, Pical, where half the book is the chemical recipes for all sorts of psychedelic substances. The other one is the story of their love story and their use of various substances. So, Charlie, Shelley, thank you ever so much for joining me and my listeners on Psychoactive. Thank you, Ethan. It's wonderful to be here. Charlie, um, you know, I'll tell you, reading your book, I mean, it's really almost a story um, of three loves, your love with Shelley, your love of MDMA and its value, and then a third story about your love of community and the communities you're part of um, and that you've helped organize and curate. And so, you know, let me just start um, by asking you, I mean, much of your book involves, you know, this this the period 20 odd years ago when you and Shelley meet and it's your second marriages and you fall in love. And and we'll get into that story. But in terms of your earlier history of MDMA, had you done it before? Had it been less valuable to you in your life? Was there a pre-story there? MDMA was not valuable to me at all until I met Shelley. I had given it up. I had only done it alone and recreationally. Uh, I didn't know about the protocols at the time. I'm going back to the 90s. And I didn't know about hydrating. I didn't know about not mixing it with alcohol, all these basic fundamental mistakes. So I had given it up for dead. I thought that this was a substance without substance. Then I met Shelley. And... Uh, Shelley was like just recently sprung from a, a regressive marriage and she wanted to spread her wings. And when she found out about my hippie past, and I don't know if it's all in the past, um, and she found out that I was a psychonaut and had been a psychonaut for 30 years by the time I met her 20 years ago. Uh, she said she wanted to. Uh, she wanted me to corrupt her, basically. So I set about doing so. And the first time we did MDMA together was a true revelation for both of us. Just seeing her come on, uh, seeing her climb on MDMA was like. I mean, to my mind, she was beautiful to begin with, and um, and full of uh, innocence and and joy. And suddenly, I realized that yeah, this is the chemical of connection. This chemical is not to be done alone. Uh, when I was alone, I felt like I was uh, and and rolling alone. I felt like I was all dressed up with nowhere to go. It's really about connecting with myself, but also with another, and, and in time, many others, uh, and, and uh, intentional experiences that we curated uh, later on. Well, let me ask, you know, I, at one point you say in the book, Charlie, that, that uh, what you love most, or that, that you find that you came to recognize the things that you love most about Shelley and MDMA are similar. And I wonder, yes. Shelley, would you say the same about Charlie and MDMA? What do you mean by similar? Well, Charlie, what did you mean by similar? <laughs> well, um, that 
MDMA gets me right in the moment. And that's really where Shelley lives. I have a more of a, my mind is heavy and convoluted and I'm always thinking about the past and the future. Shelley is more in the here and now. And that's what MDMA does for me as well. So that's a similarity right there. I agree. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I, I just wanted to say it also, for me, at the very first time, I felt alive. I, I had been very uh, oppressed, I guess, between my mother and my ex-husband. And all of a sudden, everything, all my little handcuffs were, were released. And I, I felt beautiful. It, it was just amazing. And the drug has continued to work for the two of you. Oh, yeah. After many dozens of, because uh, now you're using it, I think you said in the book, try three or four times a year, and it's, you've been together for over 20 years? Well, we've been, we've done about 80 rolls together. In the, in the, in and the roll 20, is an in MDMA last, experience, basically. Correct. Uh, in the last uh, 20 years, yes. And, uh -huh. and, you know, another similarity is that MDMA gets me and other people I've met into a state of complete innocence, like a childlike, just happy to be alive and be with somebody else that they like, just very simple and innocent and joyful. And Shelley is, uh, is really, I experience her as a very, uh, her spirit is is very innocent and and joyful so that's another way that they're they are similar well you know i mean what really stands out for me in your book is the ways in which you can i mean we'll talk about the ways you can wish mdma to being a psychotherapist but it's about the notion of healthy aging I mean, you, you, you specifically say healthy aging is not just for older people, um, but also for younger people as well. But, you know, here, I mean, there's a sense in which I'm reading your book and I, meant, I mean, here we are, you and I were two, you know, bald headed, white goateed senior citizens, right, <laughs> dealing with aging in various ways and, and also deeply immersed in, a, or you more than I perhaps, but in a, in a psychedelic community in New York and more broadly, right? And the issues around aging, you know, as our bodies age, as all sorts of things age and stuff like that. But you talk about the role of MDMA in healthy aging as an absolutely pivotal ingredient to making aging work well. So just yes. you know, say um, uh, a little more about that. I, I've learned that, and, and this I really only learned through uh, having all these experiences over the years with MDMA, it seems to have a cumulative effect, at least for me. Uh, so many experiences of being for four, five, six, seven, eight hours, feeling completely ageless, giving me a sense of what it's like to uh, feel like really 10, 20, 30, 40 years younger than I am, for that period of time, uh, I can dance like, I'm not even dancing, I'm being danced like the MDMA is the puppeteer and I, the marionette and I'm, uh, and I'm being danced and I'm moving so light on my feet. Uh, and it helped me realize that aging is 
<laughs> that I've been brainwashed about it. I think we all have. You know, like the, the, the brainwashing goes like this. Past age 25, your stock goes down uh, a point a, a year in terms of your, of your worth uh, to society or socially. Uh, and so that's why we are all on a hell-bent mission to try to say, oh, I'm not old. Uh, uh, I'm young at heart. Like old is, old itself is a dirty word. That's like ridiculous uh, and, and uh, oppressive. Uh, so I, I, you know, somebody looks at me now and they say, uh, you know, you, you look about, oh, 60, 65. I want to shake them up and they'll say, excuse me, I'm about to be 74 years old and I earned every year and I'm happy and proud to be uh, this age. I don't want to be mistaken for younger as if that's some sort of compliment. It's not a compliment. It's actually a backhanded insult when somebody says, you look good for your age. I'm sorry. You look good for a, and fill in the blank, with any other demographic, and it would be an insult. But, but you look good for your age means that um, you don't look as old as you really are, as if that's supposed to be uh, make you more valuable in some way. So I realized through doing MDMA a lot that um, all this was oppressing me and that at any age in my life, I am every age. In other words, MDMA helped me get in touch with my 8-year-old, my 18-year-old, my 28-year-old. And I can do that when I'm sober because my inner child or my inner 18-year-old or my inner 30-year-old has, has things to tell me and things to remind me of. And that this vitality and spontaneity that I had then is still available to me. And so MDMA has really helped me across the adult lifespan. Mm -hmm. Well, for our listeners, let me just read a few lines from uh, the book, from Charlie's book, Listening to Ecstasy. He says at one point, there are two boxes in this world one needs to avoid as best one can. The box they put you in when you die and the one they try to put you in when you're alive. I found the best way to delay the former is to live a life outside the latter. <laughs> and then at another point, he, go, he describes MDMA as an emotional decongestant and says, I found my ability to appreciate and benefit from medicines like MDMA ripens with age, that for him, it's a chemical hedge against feeling like aging's victim and against age-related fear. Here we have not an antidote, but a salve, a tonic, a rejuvenating vacation that can replenish the fountain of one's youth. Shelley, the same for you? Absolutely. When I roll, I, I do become ageless. I don't think of how old I am. And because even when I'm not rolling, I still, my brain, I still feel young. I mean, I'll tell you, in reading your book, part of, I had really almost two kind of emotional reactions to it. One was how much it reminded me of what I loved about MDMA uh, in my relationships in the past, you know, and the role it played that, you know, in my relationship with my first wife, where I think, you know, we were at the verge of divorce and we did it. And it was really eye-opening and more than eye-opening, soul-opening. And I, even though it didn't result in saving our marriage, it helped us to a soft 
after landing. And then in subsequent mm. relationships, it was just this incredibly valuable tool. And also, I, you know, in terms of talking things through, in terms of being clear with one, being able to not just say things well, but hear things well. And I also noticed even the very first time I did it, about being in my body. It wasn't I, I burst out. Well, I guess there was some dancing there. I mean, but I remember feeling the energy. I'd always felt that the energy in my body was very, very much in my torso. And I never felt all that grounded. And the first time I did MDMA, I could almost feel the energy pushing itself down my legs to kind of become more grounded. And then on the music, I remember that the, for the music I, we put on, it was something called Earth Tribe Rhythm. It was uh, this wonderful dancing music, this drumming and electronic music um, that was just, you know, just inspiring. It just would, you know, dance like crazy the same way that you're describing. But in the book, you talk about some other things. You talk about about music and a good sound system. You talk mm -hmm. about anchoring. Um, say something more, first of all, about what, what music goes well with what and why. <laughs> well, it depends what you want to do. Um... Uh, a comedian once said, I heard him on the TV, he said, with uh, MDMA, people like to dance to EDM. And he says, you know what EDM stands for? It means everyone's doing Molly. So I like EDM, <laughs> electronic dance music, of course, is what it really stands for. And because that's for dancing. Uh, and also for me, good old rock and roll. Uh, but for if I'm not uh, if I'm feeling more calm and uh, and just hanging out with my love, um, we might put on some uh, Buddha bar or trip hop exotic uh, Buddha lounge uh, and, and different playlists like that. And Shelly, you share the same tastes with Charlie in this matter? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when, when I first met him, I... Pretty much, I, I raised two children, so I was listening to a lot of kids' stuff and listening to show tunes. So I introduced him to show tunes. He introduced me to old-fashioned rock and roll. And little by little, over the years, we, we started playing with different kinds of music, and we found Buddha Lounge for softer, like, edgier music or... or uh, Buddha Lounge, Buddha Bar, which is softer. It's also very sexual, so that's uh, nice. Well, so let me. I, I want to get into the sexual thing in a moment, but what about um, mixing MDMA with other drugs? Whether it's, I guess, it's called like candy flipping when you do with LSD, or some people well, like combining with yeah. marijuana, either before, during, or after. Mm -hmm. What's your thoughts about about all of that? Well, well um, New Year's Eve, we candy flipped which we like to do. If we can't make uh -huh. it to the Fish concert because they want $200,000 a ticket, um, we can't make it to Fish on New Year's <laughs> Eve at Madison Square Garden, then we'll, uh, we'll candy flip at home uh, with MDMA and LSD. And uh, that tends to uh, put us over the edge, <laughs> really. It tends to uh, put us in a very blissful blissful, uh, deeply sensual space. But even then, if, if we're just doing MDMA and we want to get it on, um, which I always do with my ageless angel, um, we will wait till the end of the role because it's hard for 
uh, it's 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 uh, I just punned there as a bad pun. It's it's difficult, not it's hard for a man to stay hard on MDMA. At least that's the experience of a lot of men. So we wait till the end of mm -hmm. the roll as we're coming down and add cannabis to it. Um, Shelley will take an edible, which she has a lot. A very valuable things to talk about about that and I will just um, take some uh, smoke some uh, sativa and then we can have what I like to call sextasy uh, where we're just huh. having an amazing sexual encounter at the end of a role so let me shift here to Shelley. So Shelley, um, in terms of cannabis and MDMA and these other things, uh, I mean, throughout this book, and obviously you must have given your okay for Charlie to do this, he describes you as this incredibly sexual, sensual, orgasmic, you know, ever more so <laughs> as you age. Um, I mean, it's a wonderful description. It, it might, some, one element reminded me of part of the things that Ann Shulgin writes about when she does 2CB with, uh, with Sasha. You know, yeah. I remember that thing she talked about doing 2CB at one point and, and just totally going through this horrific depression, ego destruction. And then Sasha appears at the door and the thing does a 180 and flips into this utter beauty. And she has the most, the biggest, most sustained orgasms of her life. She thereby, by the way, set a lot of people up for, for failure when it came to like jumping, let's do 2CB and have sex because people, if you just <laughs> go into that way, often it's just not going to work that way. Um, but, I, but I'm curious, Shelly. So when Charlie's describing you in this way, I'm I'm assuming that you verified everything you wrote about you in this book. So when it comes to these different drugs um, and in terms of sexuality, and I understand that you're oftentimes, you know, that you're part of what you do is actually teaching younger women about learning about their sexuality. So tell us about your sexuality, and especially as you've gotten older, and the various medicines or substances that you're using. Do you have about a week? <laughs> well, not exactly, but how about the highlights? Okay, the highlights. First of all, I found when we lived in our first apartment, uh, I was just starting to go through menopause, and uh, we could hear the people in the next in the next apartment, which meant they could hear us. So I realized I I was very controlled. And I was I was sexy I was sexual, but not until we moved to our apartment now, where we have a, another building next to our building. So set and setting for me changed completely, and that made me feel free. I could be more verbal, which does help. Uh, it's only been about two years now. I've been playing with edible cannabis because I have a, a vocal cord problem, and my doctor told me to use edible because the vape was causing problems. Well, I started using cannabis, the edible, and it, it like changed me completely. I am, they say that the brain is the largest sex organ in our body, and I've been taking advantage of that. Uh, yeah. It focuses on me. And uh, many times I will take it before Charlie's ready for me, and I just play with music. I'll listen to music. I'll start focusing it on different parts of my body. I'll, I'll start touching different parts of my body. I'm learning more and more about my body even now. 
And I feel that that a lot of women don't know their body. They don't know. A lot of them don't even know that they're what kind of orgasms there are. How many orgasms? I, I call my little ones orgs. I have lots of orgs. And uh, I started playing with music where I would listen to different kinds of music. And as it would vibrate, I would focus the vibration down below. And I found I could have an orgasm without touching myself, just using the music in my brain. And when people hear that, they're like, oh, my God. <laughs> because I have to use edibles which stay in your body longer and I think really affect the body maybe differently, I can't talk for people who smoke or, you know, who vape, whatever. I can only talk about edibles. But, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's very interesting, and I'm still learning. And I'll tell you a very quick story. When I was in mm -hmm. nursing school back in 1969, I started. 1969, 1970, a gynecologist came to talk to the whole uh, freshman class because we were all getting, you know, we're 18 years old, 19 years old, living in New York City. He was talking to us about the birth control pill, and then he talked about something called the pelvic tilt. Now, I was a virgin. I really knew nothing about sex. A few months ago, uh, during sex, I realized I was doing the pelvic tilt he was talking about 50 years ago. And it meant just moving my body up so that he was rubbing against my clitoris and giving me an orgasm. So that, that was like, whoa, it only took me 50-something years. And this, this you just came across recently. Yeah. What a wonderful <laughs> discovery. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. Right. I do cannabis every week, but but I uh, on New Year's Eve when we candy flipped, uh, I ended up taking a little piece of edible, and because the MDMA seemed to be overpowering the LSD, and we wanted to have sex, <laughs> so I took a little piece of edible, and about within an hour, all of a sudden the the tapestry over our bed is moving. And I'm like, holy shit, I'm tripping. <laughs> and Charlie's like, oh, you mean the, the uh, did the cannabis uh, help the, the MDMA? I'm like, no. And I only took a little piece of acid. I said, it activated the acid. For the yeah. first time, I was, quote unquote, tripping balls. Uh -huh. I had never done that that much before. And it was very, very different. <laughs> uh, sex at that point, I couldn't do because I could barely speak. So We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. In the book, Rachel, you talk about the importance of anchoring right, that during the MDMA experience, that one's getting the emotional, psychological insights and that one wants to kind of be conscious at that time of how one can come back to those places. But I'm wondering, both for you and Shelley, whether that's also true about sexuality, like even leaving apart the cannabis, um, does one get to places with the LSD or, or, or MDMA and sexuality that one can then anchor and think about how one comes back to those that space without the use of substances, um, you know, in subsequent days, weeks, or the rest of one's life? Yes. Um, and one great way to anchor <laughs> the experience is with the use of music. And uh, this is described in the book, but also when you're high on whatever substance and you get into a piece of music that you love, and if it's a piece of music that makes you feel erotic, or sensual, uh, you can make note of that and remember that. And then afterwards, uh, days or weeks later, when you're sober, uh, you can play that music again and turn down the lights and light some candles and and um, hang out with your partner or yourself and get into that same sensual or sexual mood. Shelly, I mean, is it that way for you as well? I mean, is there a sense of that, oh, my God, factor saying I can I can get back here without these drugs? Um, yes and no. When Charlie proposed to me, I was ecstatic, obviously. He proposed to me on a Friday. That next day, we had planned to go up to a state park upstate, which we did, and we took MDMA. And I listened to a song by Enya called Flora's Secret, because we were like the only ones in this field. The sun was shining, and Flora's Secret's about flowers. I listened to it about 25, 30 times while under the influence of MDMA. Even today, 20 some odd years later, I, or 15, 17 years later, I can listen to that song and be brought back to the feeling of lying under the sun being on MDMA, even now. Mm. Uh, that's the most impressive one that I find. It, it still amazes me. Uh, there are some psychedelic songs that Charlie plays sometimes. Uh, like the Chambers Brothers, uh, Time Has Come Today. It's a very, uh, how Trippy. would you put it, Charlie? 
trippy song. I yeah. think we're talking about the Some long of- version, the FM version, the eleven minute version. Time has come today. It's that nineteen sixty seven, one of the best psychedelic songs ever ever produced. And w- and when I hear that song, it just puts me in the mood, no matter what mm-hmm. I'm on or if anything. What a blessing this has been for me. If you ask me at age 30, 40, or 50 what my sex life would be as a 73-year-old man, I would have frowned and said, I dread what would happen, Mm -hmm. uh, what will happen. But um, our sex life keeps ripening, keeps blossoming. Um, uh, and my wife, my this this I call her my ageless angel. She she's more sexual than ever before. So um, I'm just uh, so blessed to have found her. Well, let me ask this question. I mean, Shelley, what you're describing is obviously just you know um, you started using edibles two years ago, but that's when Charlie's book came out, and he's already describing you as this incredibly sexual being before that. And also about MDMA. So I'm curious, Shelley, what about with MDMA? I mean, you know, I mean, Charlie describes, and it's been sometimes my experience as well that MDMA could lead to really exquisite um, sex, although virtually never ending for me, at least, in an orgasm, that it was almost impossible right. to orgasm, but that yeah. one could get an incredibly sensual, you know, loving, sexy, just delicious, delightful place. Yes. Um, uh, but um, what about from your perspective in terms of MDMA and sex? Uh, okay. One time <laughs> at a mu- music festival, I was standing up and swaying to the music, and apparently I was rubbing my legs together. I had an orgasm. <laughs> I was I was on MDMA at the time. Yes. <laughs> and if we are together in bed and the MDMA is still very active, um, the best thing I can do for her is go down on her um, at that time <laughs> because it might be hard for me to <sighs> get or stay hard, but I can do other things. You know, I really appreciate your sharing these stories here. On the other hand, I also wonder, you know, I mean, Charlie, I have to say in reading your book and, you know, you're offering a lot of wisdom and guidance about healthy aging and about sexuality. But it also, you know, I keep having this, you know, questioning thing. Well, but Charlie, maybe you just met the perfect woman to have this relationship with. <laughs> and it, it's less about the drug and it's more about the woman. And obviously the drug is helping these things along. Um, you know, but, but I mean, you, you talk in the book about, you know, for the first two you in your 20s, 30s and 40s, for you it was always finding some woman who was highly intellectual and was all going to, you know, ups and downs mood wise and was inevitably going to be, there's going to be a lot of, you know, a lot of excitement, but a lot of grief. And then you describe meeting Shelly, who is just this magical partner for you. And I wonder about, you know, if, if you, I don't want you to have to go think about this, but assuming you had never met Shelly. I mean, would this whole evolution in your life with MDMA and sexual—I mean, could it even? Could you even envision it having happened, or was she just the key to all of this? You—you uh, you, have—you make a good point. I mean, Shelly, Shelly and I are unusually compatible, um, but the the thing is, Ethan, that uh, I think the ageism, the internalized ideas that we uh, that we inhale from this culture about 
what to expect from ourselves and our partners or our future partners as we age is debilitating because we expect less in terms of sexual connection. And, you know, often women, they go through menopause and many women feel like, I'm done with sex. That's it. I don't want to have sex anymore. And, and that's a, obviously a very valid choice. All we're saying is that there's another option uh, and that couples don't have to settle for a sexless marriage if they don't want to. If they're having emotional troubles uh, because they're fighting and and, and and that gets reflected in a lack of a sex life, okay, well, then you need couples counseling because uh, I've found that, you know, it can, it can get better with couples counseling. Shelly and I have been to a couples counselor many times uh, because we hit, we're human, we, we hit snags along the way, um, but it, it, but we are unusually compatible. Uh, and uh, sex is, is uh, to have a sexually alive marriage is, is possible across the whole adult lifespan. And, you know, there's a whole spectrum of, sexual, of sexuality between two people. It's not just about intercourse. It can be about affection, uh, Shelley and I are affectionate uh, through the day and through the week with each other. We keep that aliveness there, that connection there. And that was influenced not only by our strong love for each other, but by MDMA that helped us stay in the moment and realize that our bodies are where we live. And when I touch her... Mm-hmm. I feel her touching me, and uh, and it 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 brings me out of whatever craziness I'm uh, rumination I have in my head. Um, she, I, I wake up in the morning and I'm full of a thousand thoughts. I walk into the kitchen, she stands up and wants to hug me, and my day is made at that point because uh, <laughs> she just squeezes uh-huh. all the nonsense out of me at that moment that I come to and I'm really awake then for the rest of the day. You know, Charlie, one thing you do spend a lot of time on in the latter part of the book is dealing on the one hand with ageism in our society and not just ageism in terms of young people kind of making assumptions about people who look older, um, but also in the ways in which those assumptions are internalized. And then you describe how you and Shelley uh, do something which I can relate to a lot, which is you oftentimes find yourself in environments, um, parties, things like that, um, where you're far and away the oldest people there. Right, yes. where the, most of the people in their twenties or thirties, and there you are in your late sixties, early seventies, and what that's like, and what you describe, I think is, I mean, first of all, a lack of inhibition on both your part and even more so Shelley's part, um, that's actually rejuvenating, and 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 sort of you know just stimulates a kind of renewed vitality where you can feel your younger self and even your body for at least for those hours can feel dramatically younger than it actually is when we are with younger people and it's often with people in the psychedelic community um suddenly those old notions of i call them apartheid 
of 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 uh, uh, age segregation that exists in a town like New York City, it falls away, and the benefit is two way. It's in both directions. We benefit by being around younger people who are filled with vitality and a freshness that you ordinarily don't see in 60s and 70s and 80-year-olds. So we benefit from that. They benefit from seeing us. Uh, um, sometimes they want to, you know, just be around us to gain whatever wisdom they think we might have. Um, uh, but also they want to be around us because they see the love between us. It's palpable, and it gives them hope for their future. Uh, if they're single, it gives them hope to have a relationship that, that works like ours does. Um, uh, but if they're coupled, they can see that, yeah, the love can keep going and keep growing through the decades. But I mean, it sounds like you're trying to send a message to that on the one hand, the psychedelics community is quite accepting of this age spectrum. But yes. even so, to be in a kind of parting environment is um, is unusual. And you guys are sort of role models. And you talk in back the fact that seeing yourselves as 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 owning the notion of yourself as elders and yes. even, you know, not quite putting it in people's face, but saying we are elders and there's something to. So, I mean, when did that first hit you that you're an elder, that you and Shelley are elders <laughs> in all of this? When we would go to a rave and people would come up to us invariably and say, I'm so glad you're here. You give me hope. Uh, they use a, a different line uh, sometimes than the one your friend got. He said, you're what I want to be when I don't grow up. <laughs> so uh -huh. people are, are grateful to us for for showing up and showing that it's possible to uh, to, to keep the party going through, across the the whole lifespan. Uh -huh. Shelly, you share this feeling of being an elder in the community? Oh, absolutely. I I've had I had a woman come over to me back in October. We were at a party and. Uh, she wanted to know what she was in her like early thirties. Do I have any advice for her? And I said, and, and I had to think because I, nobody's ever really asked me about advice. And I said, go with your gut feeling because I have learned that if the gut is telling me one thing, it's usually the right thing. I like to say that the best part of the psychedelic community isn't the psychedelics, it's the community. It's uh, the people who are drawn to these medicines are among the most open-hearted, open-minded, curious, seeking people uh, that I would ever want to meet. And so we've, we've lucked out in this way. And uh, to, to be elders, it just seems... Um, uh, like I feel like we're in the right place at the right time, especially in the middle of a mm -hmm. renaissance. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's fabulous. Well, you know, in the book, Charlie, you put this in some historical context. I mean, at one point you say, I wonder if my shift in drugs of choice from cocaine when I was younger to MDMA corresponds to a larger shift in the zeitgeist, one to a more feminine ethic. Consider the code names for these two drugs, Blow and Molly. 
And then you talk about, you know, two key moments in 2004 and five, I think it was first when Peter Jennings, the ABC news correspondent, does his special about MDMA called Ecstasy Rising. And then around the same time when Alex Gray, the famous psychedelicist painter and his wife, Allison, also a painter, you know, uh, creates the Chapel of Sacred Mirrors. Uh, COSM, C-O-S-M, and when that opens in New York and sort of opens up a culture. So it does seem that there was, I mean, here, you and Shelley had, what, met in the late 90s or around 2000? And 2000. then a few years later, there's this kind of both, you know, public media opening with with uh, Peter Jennings thing and then with Alex and Al Allison Gray doing COSM. I mean, what, when you reflect back on that time, I mean, what did it feel like then? Or was it you know, did, were you just in the right place and right time to be, you know, part of this wave or was just part of a broader zeitgeist that was happening, you know, that is it now was, changing um, the world? Like I say, we're in the right place at the right time and we still are. Um, Cosm opened in uh, October 1st, 2004. I, I, I tell the whole story in the book. Uh, and uh, and and, oh, and Roland Griffiths was doing this breakthrough work at, uh, at Johns Hopkins uh, where they, they realizing that uh, psilocybin can have these terrific beneficial effects uh, for people, and and that was getting that was the first wave of publicity that LSD uh, or magic mushrooms or MDMA uh, that had been damned by the by uh, the government and the culture uh, are actually. Uh, solutions. They're not drug problems. They're drug solutions. And that uh, the, 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 the narrative around these substances began to change back then. And don't don't forget that in 20, in 2003, after Ecstasy Rising, was when we started our first potlucks. Ah. Where we were ah. able to little, yeah, that's a very important part of our life. It's true. Yeah. But listen, to go back to what you were just talking about there about community, that Cosm, Chapel of Sacred Mirrors, you know, inspires a kind of pop-up parties. You guys have your first gathering. And that, you know, and, and that's part of the places where you're interacting with much younger people. But it's clear, Charlie, that you're very conscious. And I guess, really, both of you, you and Shelley, in terms of bringing people together, you know, emphasizing the value of community. Sometimes this involves MDMA. Sometimes it does not. But just, you know, I mean, I'm really impressed. And I know you've invited me numerous times to to, to come to one of these gatherings. And I, I, I do intend, in fact, sooner than later to say yes to that. Um, but say more about these gatherings and their well, importance. And the importance. Sure. As I said at the beginning, you described your three loves, right? Shelley, MDMA, and, and the communities that you're part of. So talk about community. Well, um, so uh, we wanted to host here. Maps had sent out an email saying anyone who wants to host a screening of the Peter Jennings uh, interview, uh, a show called Ecstasy Rising in 2004, just let us know. So we let them know. And they sent a bunch of people our way. And we all watched this together. That was our first potluck. Um, we all watched it together, and um, we, we, we were talking till like 1 or 2 a.m. in the morning because we had found each other. So every year after that, we would host a potluck in our apartment 
reaching out to maps to say, you know, tell people in the New York City vicinity and, and uh, you know, that we are opening our homes to, uh, uh, to other MAPS members. And over the years, it would grow, and finally we couldn't contain it to one night anymore. It grew to two nights and then three nights. Now, these years, we have people coming in over four nights, 20, 25 people per night from the maps and the larger community too uh, here in New York City, the, the, the psychedelic community. And it, these are just blissful events because, and they're sober events, uh, except for a little wine or beer. It's, it's a potluck and it's sober and we're, we're, we're talking about a topic that people agree on beforehand that they want to talk about like sex, drugs, and intimacy or whatever the topic is. And people get to meet, and friendships get born on those nights. That friendships that have lasted for for years, even decades now. Uh, this coming year, uh, into twenty twenty three, we we will be celebrating our twentieth anniversary of uh, our, our potluck dinners, and we're going to do something special to to do this and uh, get a whole whole lot of people together for a night. Uh, maybe rent a boat to go around Manhattan. I don't know what we're going to do, but uh, <laughs> we usually do this in, in uh, later in the year. Uh, but we've also hosted, besides the potlucks, we've hosted definitely non-sober experiences uh, in Prospect Park, where we'll just gather people together, 25 people, 35 people, 45 people, and... To the outside world, it just looks like a bunch of people having a picnic, except for the occasional cuddle puddle. Uh, but we're just um, having a, a blissful time together for the day. And for people who participate in that, and anyone can do this, by the way, any listener of this show, uh, you know people or you can, you can find people who will do this with you. And it's a wonderful way to get to know people. There's no better way to spend the day uh, than uh, rolling together on MDMA and just getting to know each other. And, and because, it, as you know, MDMA opens the heart and opens the mind. And uh, just to make that connection, people want to stay connected after these group experiences for years. Um, and they do. It's a great way to to make new friendships, and it's been a, a wonderful blessing for Shelley and I. Charlie, is there any advice you can tell listeners about how they actually can? Are there are there websites or anything else to figure out how you tap into this community in your local area? Well, um, yeah, uh, there, there are many websites. Um, certainly, uh, if somebody wants to tap into the community, they can give me uh, send me an email. Uh, you can you can get into my website at listeningtoecstasy.com or charlieweninger.com and cjwinninger at gmail.com is my email address. But they're also, like here in New York, uh, there's the Brooklyn Psychedelic Society, which um, is uh, very popular. And there are psychedelic societies all over the country. You just have to do some digging. They're not underground. They are. It's not a place to go to get high. It's not a place to go to find a source. It's a place to go to meet other people. And 
Uh, it's, sometimes it's on meetup.org, uh, or you can start your own psychedelic society in your town. Believe me, there are people within 10 miles of you lots of people within 10 miles of you who are doing psychedelics and they're just keeping it quiet like you might be keeping it quiet but they're out there and they want to meet you so there are friendships waiting to be made let's take a break here and go to an ad I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Now, Chai, I want to take up another issue, though, with you, which is you also describe some history of struggling with substance abuse, with yes. cocaine and yes. with amphetamine and having a father mm-hmm. who's alcoholic. And, and you also then talk about how MDMA has helped you in that yes. regard. That if any, you know, whereas you have to be careful, there are people who can get addicted to MDMA. It is possible, and people do abuse it in that way. Um, but it also can be helpful. So just say more about that. Well, um, yeah, it's a whole story. Uh, but um, I was struggling with cocaine for a while, and the best definition of cocaine I, I ever heard was Robin Williams calling it the devil's dandruff. Um, it just, I mean, for some people it works, I'm sure, but for me, it, it, it worked me. Um, the cocaine was doing me. I wasn't doing cocaine. Um, it was, uh, it, it was abusing me. And I realized that I had to quickly, quickly make a choice. It was going to win or I was going to win. So, um, I, uh, found two key two keys, one legal and one not legal. Uh, the, the not legal key for me was MDMA because I soon discovered that MDMA was a far, far superior medicine uh, because it lasts longer, because it doesn't have addictive qualities like cocaine notoriously does. Not everyone gets addicted to cocaine who uses it, but a lot of people do. I, I was getting there. Um, uh, and MDMA is not 
addictive uh, for me and for most people. Uh, and it lasts a lot longer. It's a whole lot cheaper. It has all kinds of, of, of benefits. The legal uh, route that helped me was very dark chocolate. And I'm talking about 100% bitter chocolate. Most people eat chocolate for the taste. I eat it for the effect because it, it sends me in just a little bit of the same direction of cocaine or MDMA. It's a stimulant and it's a mood elevator. And so I am now a chocoholic, which is a perfectly functional addiction to have. Uh, and I'll eat 100% dark chocolate with um, dates in it. And it's just, it's just wonderful. And it, it elevates my mood and it helps uh, sex as well. Uh, and, it, it's, um, and it's healthy. So these things have helped me uh, I haven't done cocaine in, what, um, about 11, 12 years now. And so uh, I'm, very, I'm very happy about that. Mm -hmm. And when you think about how your MDMA use has shaped your, your um, approach to being a psychotherapist, I mean, is it a monumental impact on that or just kind of a, uh, you know, it's helped you refine, be more empathic? I mean... What are, the, what are the key, what's the relationship there? It's helped me become a better therapist because, I mean, I was fairly empathetic to begin with, but of course MDMA helps amplify one's uh, proclivity towards empathy. And having had 80 roles, I know what it feels like in my heart to empathize with somebody physically, um, and I can anchor that and bring it into the therapy session. I do therapy sober. The, the client is sober, and I am sober. But I found that the best therapy I can do, that I can provide, is if I can try to make, try to create an atmosphere, an environment in the therapy room that replicates the MDMA experience. And what I mean by that is being receptive to the person, uh, listening deeply into and through exact all that they're saying and all that they're conveying, really being there uh, and uh, reflecting back to them what I hear and, uh, and, and empathizing and showing compassion as best as I can. And when they feel safe, their defenses can come down a bit. And when the defenses come down, they can come out a bit and risk being vulnerable right there in the therapy session. And that's where the healing can really start taking place. And when we think about MDMA, I mean, obviously, the, you know, the research that's being done out by MAPS in terms of treating PTSD, and there's all the looking at the, its value in other areas, maybe including addiction, maybe including eating disorders, maybe including, you know, fear around end of life. But when we think about MDMA and helping people deal with grief or the grief of the loss of a loved one, um, what can you say about that? How much time do we have, Ethan? Story I mean, I'm also, I'm this. hesitant because, you know, I know when, when, when we all had dinner with some friends uh, last year, 
And Shelley, you told the story about the about the loss of your son, and also about how I think MDMA was helpful in dealing with that. But I don't know. I don't know if you want to go there. I know it's painful to talk about. So, Shelley, if you're willing to share that story, I think it would be interesting and enlightening for our listeners. Okay. So on May 13th, um, my son died. He was 39 years old. And uh, this was in, in 2021. We already knew that we were going to have a group, a group role. And people were asking, was Shelly going to be in on it? And I said, absolutely. It, to, to use MDMA to help me in my grief, it, it, could, be, it, it could be perfect. So we, um, we went to Prospect Park in about a, an hour and a half or so into the experience. Charlie called us into a circle, whoever wanted to participate. There was one person who came down from Boston. Actually, he had lost his mother the same day that I lost my son. And he spoke about his mother a little bit. And then other people who had lost people in, in the past year had spoken about their people. And then it was my turn. And um, when... I, somebody had enlarged a photograph for me, and when I opened it up, I saw the photograph. I just started crying a little bit. A photograph of Scott. A, a photograph of my son. And um, then Charlie said that what he said to the group, that what he didn't tell me was that that day, that when after I heard, heard what happened, he and I, Charlie and I were sitting on the couch, and Charlie said he felt Scott, my son's name was Scott, he felt Scott's presence in the, in the living room. I felt Scott's presence in the living room um, the day he died, and he was hovering above, and this man who was 39 years old, who had been suffering all his life from mental illness and physical maladies. He was in a lot of pain. He was smiling down at the two of us, and he said, I'm free. And at that, when I said that in front of Shelley to the whole group there in Prospect Park, she burst like a dam, and she began sobbing. And as I was sobbing, I could start to feel people, energy around me, people coming, touching my head, my shoulders, my legs. And I don't know how long I sobbed. I, I kind of lost who I was. And I, I, it wasn't until I don't even know how long I, I sobbed. But then I, I realized I was kind of emptying myself out. And because of the MDMA, I realized this afterwards, of course, and because of the MDMA, I was able to receive their love and, and everything because they were on MDMA and they were able to give. And uh, when I opened my eyes, it was a bit strange. I didn't see people at first. I, I saw, I can only describe it like spirits, and 
they were dark, but it was, it, it, I, real, I just felt calm. And when I opened my eyes, I finally, when it cleared, I saw people and uh, it, it was beautiful. I it just, I, I thanked them and said how it's really helped me start my healing. And then I had told Charlie earlier that I wanted to dance. Whatever happens in this circle, I, I don't know what's going to happen, but I want to dance to, to celebrate life. And that's what we did. Then I put some dance music on, and we danced, and it was really an ecstatic moment. Uh, because of the MDMA, like Shelley said, um, she could feel without hesitation just uh, at that moment uh, when she heard me say that Scott said he was free, she could just really expel all that grief and let it completely out. We left her empty. And then when she opened her eyes, she could see all these loving people around her and she could just let herself fill up with their love. And so the grief got replaced with the love. And sure, Shelley still has, has grief for her, the passing of her son. Of course, she will for the rest of her life, but she's never been debilitated by it because of that moment. It was not just MDMA that did it, it was MDMA in community uh, and with the intention of healing that did it. A few days later, we got an email from a friend who was there who said, I never want to go to a traditional wake or funeral again for the rest of my life. This is the way to honor somebody who has passed. This is the way to heal those who have felt, who feel the passing the most. Wow. Well... That's uh, I thank you so much for sharing that story, uh, Charlie and Shelley. So on that somewhat somber note, I want to thank you, both of you, for taking the time to have this wonderful conversation um, and uh, with me and my listeners on Psychoactive. So thank you ever so much, Charlie and Shelley. Thank you so much. If you're enjoying Psychoactive, please tell your friends about it. Or you can write us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, and ideas, then leave us a message at 1-833-779-2460. That's 833-PSYCHO-0. Or you can email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. You can also find contact information in our show notes. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman. It's produced by Noam Osband and Josh Thane. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Giesis, and Darren Aronofsky from Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick from iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Nadelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian, and a special thanks to Avivit Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beebe. Next week, 
for what will be the final episode of season two, we have my old friend and ally, Steve Rolls, longtime senior policy analyst at the British organization Transform, talking with me about models and realities in legalizing cannabis and other drugs. If you are actually in the position of making the reforms and drafting the legislations which shape the nature of the market from the outset, you have the power to do things very differently. And that's why you do have the possibility of social equity programs that restrict licensing or preference licensing for for impact to communities. And you are able to legislate that 40% or 70% of tax revenue is redirected into impact to communities. Let's, let's use cannabis regulation as an opportunity to show how drugs can be regulated and how markets can be regulated in the interests of the communities in which those markets exist. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.